good morning, church family. It's good to be with you again, metaphorically, virtually, and uh, just continue walking through the book of Philippians. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. We are looking at the book of Philippians this summer. So if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to Philippians chapter 1. As we look at Philippians this morning, we are going to talk about conflict. Conflict. There's no way around conflict conflict. Try as you might, you will experience conflict in life. And generally, there's two types of people, two types of ways of dealing with conflict. There's those who deal with it head on, right? Head on conflict. And then there's those who deal with it head in. I like to call this the turtle tuck. There's those who, who when conflict arises, they go right after it. They're not afraid by it. They don't back down from it, but they'll stand up to it and engage it. And then there's those who really just want to tuck, to hide, to get away from it, and to pretend it doesn't exist. If you've actually watched a turtle in conflict before being attacked by a predator, this is what they do. They just do the turtle tuck head in. And so maybe you're the type of person who deals with conflict head on. Or you're the type of person who deals with conflict head in. Um, we're all different, and we're going to deal with conflict this morning. But really, the point of the sermon this morning isn't to talk about our conflict resolution styles. It's not to talk about whether or not we address conflict head on or whether we go head in and let it pass. It's not really about that. Rather, the point of today's sermon is to help us as Christians know that conflict is expected in our lives, and it ought to be engaged by us. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 this morning, and the big idea from this text is that a life of consistency in the gospel creates a life of consistent conflict with the culture. A life of consistency in the gospel creates a life of consistent conflict with the culture. Now, as human beings... We all deal with conflict, right? So whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, you have plenty of conflict in your life if you're honest with yourselves. We have interpersonal conflict. We have relational conflict. We have conflict in the workplaces. We have conflict in our families. We have conflict in our neighborhoods. We have conflict in our city. We have conflict in our world. And we've seen this rise to the surface over the last couple of weeks. And it just reminds us that we live in a conflicted world that and all people experience this, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. But Christians specifically, we actually have an elevated level of conflict in our lives because we have all of the conflict that the world deals with, but on top of that, or, or maybe I should say underneath it, foundational for the Christian conflict is all of the ways that the values of Jesus' kingdom conflict with the values of the world. And so what I want you to know church family, is that if you are a sold-out Christian, if you have given your life to Jesus, as you live a life consistent with the gospel, you actually ought to expect an increased level of conflict in your life, and you ought to engage that conflict, not run from it. And, and there's a time and a place to let it pass, right? There's a time and a place to do the turtle talk, to go head in. And there's a time and a place to deal with it head on. And there's, there's some middle ground in between that. But I, what I want you to know is that if you are a Jesus follower, you ought to expect an increased level of conflict in your life. And you ought to be willing to engage that conflict. Let's see how the Apostle Paul warns us about this. He warns us that conflict is coming 
in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. So I'm going to ask that you stand as I read this passage. If you're on your couch, throw off that blanket. Actually, it's getting nice out. Maybe you don't have a blanket on your lap any longer. When we started this whole virtual church thing, I'm sure you had sweatpants and blankets on. Now you probably have shorts and air conditioning. But wherever you are, I'm going to ask that you stand as I read this passage. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Get your eyes on God's word and follow along with me. The Apostle Paul, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, on behalf of God, writes this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Lord God, we thank you for this word that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church in Philippi nearly 2,000 years ago that engages us now in our cultural moment and context. This is a, a timeless truth spoken in a very timely way for us today. So I pray that you would use it to meet each one of us where we're at and lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may have a seat. As we look at this text, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, there's two primary questions that I asked of this text as I considered it. The first one is, what is the manner of life worthy of the gospel? As Paul talks about in verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And so I'm asking the question, and I want us to ask the question together this morning, what is the manner of life worthy of the gospel? And then the second question is, what is the conflict at hand, and how are we to engage it? As he gets at in verse 30, he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so that's what's going on here. Paul is instructing the church in Philippi nearly 2,000 years ago, but this has direct application for us in St. Louis Park and the surrounding communities here today. He's instructing them that in the midst of conflict, and we're going to unpack what that conflict is and how they engage that conflict, that in the midst of that, the call is for us as Christians to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we're going to ask these two questions this morning. The first one, what is the manner of life worthy of the gospel? As Paul says in verse 27, what he's getting at here, this phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, the, the, the Greek word here for for worthy, it means consistent. He's saying if you claim to be a Christian, your life ought to measure up. There ought to be consistency between the words that you say and then how you live your life. Your life, your manner of life ought to be worthy of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so he's calling the church in Philippi, those who have converted to Christianity. And we looked at them a couple weeks ago. We're going to look at these characters again this morning. There's Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman. There is the Roman jailer. There is the slave girl who was demon-possessed. There's Paul. There's Timothy. He's saying, as we follow Christ... As we have chosen to follow him, our life 
must be consistent with the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let your manner of life be consistent. That if you follow Jesus, there's this consistency to the way that you live your life. That's all he's saying here. Worthy, it, it doesn't actually mean that we in our own actions measure up to God's favor. We can never do that, right? That's the gospel. The gospel, good news, the good news of the gospel is that try as you might, you can't clean yourself up. You can't work your way into heaven. That's why Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death in your place on your behalf. And now if you, as you surrender your life to him and you profess faith in Jesus, your manner of life, as you convert to Christianity, your manner of life consistently grows in the fruit of the gospel. It's taken this, this word, manner of life, this phrase, manner of life worthy, it's taken from the scale system. It's basically just saying if you profess something, the way that you live ought to match that. And so Paul is encouraging us to live it out. And what does that look like? Specifically, what does this look like here in this context for the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago? And then applying it to us today. Well, throughout the book of, the, the first chapter of the book of Philippians, he's already given us some examples of what this looks like. The first one is to put our love into action and with affection. So verses 1 through 11, and we're not going to do a deep dive into this because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but verses 1 through 11, you can see the trajectory of this is Paul is calling the church in Philippi to, to love one another and to love the world in action. Love is not an emotion. It is in action. It's something that you do. It's not just something that you feel. And that action of love is paired with affection. Now, affection can be a feeling. Affection can be some emotion, but it's also an action of show. You're showing your affection to one another. This is what Paul gets at here in verses 1 through 11. Even look at verse 8. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Oh, church family, how we yearn, I hope, to be together. We've been apart for so long. And, and if we're really living a life consistent with the gospel, you ought to long to be together, to gather in person, to see your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know so many of you do, and we are so excited to do that on July 12th. And this is consistency with the gospel. As we grow in consistency with living out the gospel, we put our love into action and we show it with affection. Another indicator here in this text is rejoicing and suffering. So Paul moves on from kind of this love and action and affection section to really talking about what it means to rejoice in suffering. That as we grow in the gospel... As Paul commands us in verse 27 to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, a, a indicator of that or one of, the, one of the ways that we do that is to rejoice the midst of suffering. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. And if you remember a couple weeks ago when we, look at, when we looked at the beginning of the church in the book of Acts chapter 16 when the church in Philippi started, Paul was thrown into prison unjustly then, and he was rejoicing in prison. He was actually singing hymns and psalms and praises out to God in prison, and that's what converted the Roman jailer. And so Paul is saying, he, in this entire, the context of this chapter, he's, he's saying that as you, as you live a life consistent with the gospel, you will put your love into action, you will love with affection, you will also rejoice in suffering. 
And so church family, whatever you're going through today, whatever your sufferings are, we need to dig into them and, and keep an eternal perspective and find a reason and a purpose to rejoice because our life is not just what is seen and experienced here and now. There's this eternal weight of glory, this eternal hope that we're moving to. And Paul is telling us that as we grow in the gospel, we will learn to rejoice in suffering. Another characteristic here is the singular focus on living for Christ. And Pastor Mark touched on this last week as we looked at this next section. Verses 21 through 26 really capitalizes on this. That a manner of life consistent with the gospel it is for you to live with the singular focus on Christ. As Paul says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm not going to dive into that because Mark preached that passage last week and, and go back and listen to that if you didn't have a chance to listen to it. But it, it's, this is how we live our life consistent with the gospel. We, almost, we, we basically have this tunnel vision that everything in my life exists for Christ and it's for his glory. And, and Mark gave some good examples of that last week. And so go back and listen to that if you missed it. And then fourthly here in this section, verse 27, that we're looking at today, he says, so he gives us in verse 27 this command, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, consistent with the gospel. And another characteristic of that is unity in spirit, mind, and mission. He says, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, Paul is in Rome writing this letter from prison in Rome and his heart longs to be with the Philippians. He knows these people. He has relationship with these people. He wasn't just a pastor there for a season who moved on and said, I don't care about them. I'm never going to think about them again. I have these other, other irons in the fire. He's creating this ministry enterprise. No, he loved these people. And he, and he says, I, I want to see you again. See that affection, this relational connection and affection that is to be present among the church. That's a sign of gospel maturity. If you love your people, if you long to be with your people, and if you don't, check your heart because maybe your life isn't consistent with the gospel. If you're like, I, I don't even want to go back to that church, but I don't even like those people anyway. Well, you probably have a heart issue. You're, you're, you're maybe in danger of not living a life consistent with the gospel. Paul says, I long to be with you. And, and he says, I, I, but whether or not I'm able to come, to come and see you or I'm absent, the second half of verse 27 he says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, a life that is consistent with the gospel will have this unity. A, a church family that is growing in the gospel will have unity of spirit. This oneness, this, and spirit can mean emotion. The Greek word here is pneuma, and it means wind, fire, emotion. It's kind of this Holy Spirit given, and this is lowercase spirit. It's, it's our spiritual being, our inner being, but it's ignited by the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul says that we ought to have unity in spirit, it means this, this oneness granted us by the Holy Spirit, but it exists in our spiritual well-being, that we care about the spiritual well-being of one another that we're united in our spirits, in our souls, that when we sing together, we feel this synergy and this connection, or when we are apart in our homes, 
watching Pastor Ben and the worship team sing on the screen. Our, our, our spirits long to be with one another. That's a life consistent of the gospel. Also, unity in mind. We, we have the same, now we don't, it, let's be clear. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Okay, so when Paul calls us to be of one mind, he's not saying you have to think all of the same things and you have to have a uniform dress code, a uniform political stance, a uniform thought process, a uniform way of doing your life, a uniform way of doing your devotions. There's not one size fits, it, it, it's not a one size fits all approach. Unity in mind means we think differently about many different things, but at the end of the day, we're united in our mission, and our mind is set on a mission. We have this singular focus on living for Christ, and our mission is united. He says at the end of verse 27, with one mind, with that one mind, so our mindset is to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're united in mission not in preference, not in perspective, not in personal desires. We're united in mission, the mission of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what unites a growing church. A manner of life worthy of the gospel is that God's people are united in repenting of sin, of following Jesus, of proclaiming his gospel to the nations of contending for the gospel side by side. So that's what it looks like to have a life consistent with the gospel. Second question, what is the conflict at hand and how are we to engage it? Again, this is 2,000 years ago, so there's, there's some specific conflict at hand here, and I want to dive into that conflict and take a look at what that specific conflict is, and then ask the question, how are we to engage it ourselves? 2,000 years later, does this have any practical application for us? And so first, before we dive into the conflict uh, for us, the cultural conflict that we, ex that, that we experience here in 2020, let's look at the conflict at hand that was happening in Philippi in, in Paul's life and ministry in Rome. Again, remember, Paul is in prison here. He's in prison in Rome for proclaiming the gospel. He was imprisoned in Philippi for proclaiming the gospel. In fact, if you remember, and if you, if you weren't with us two weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 16, I highly encourage you to go and read Acts chapter 16 so you understand the tapestry of this church. The makeup of the church in Philippi, it's such a beautiful, um, beautiful picture of how Jesus transforms lives and unites people in the gospel. And so Paul is thrown into prison in Philippi for casting the demon out of this slave girl. And there's this city riot. They beat him and they throw him in prison. And so he knows conflict. And in fact, he's, he's saying that the entire thrust of what's happening here is that Paul is sharing that he's in conflict specifically because of the gospel. And he's telling the church in Philippi that they're experiencing conflict specifically because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That, that's why I started by saying that as Christians, we have this elevated experience of conflict. Everybody in the world experienced conflict. But as Christians, we have this elevated experience of conflict because we don't go with the cultural tide of the world on anything. 
I don't know if you've noticed, it's so hard to pick a side, if you will. Because for the Christian, almost every conversation has nuance. And it has different perspective and a different way of looking at it through the gospel. And so Paul is warning us, if you are to follow Christ, if you live a life worthy of the gospel, as verse 27 calls us to do, you will experience this increased level of conflict. And as you do, you can't do the turtle talk. You have to actually engage the conflict, which is what he's telling us to do in verse 30. You can't, like an ostrich, stick your head in the sand and just let it pass. You, Christian, will live your life with an increased level of conflict between your own spirit, your own soul, and the culture and the world that you live in. And you can't just hunker down and let it pass. And there are times and seasons to hunker down, and there are times and seasons to do the turtle tuck, but we can't perpetually do that. God has called us to be reconcilers, to jump into the conflict and to engage the conflict, and that's what Paul is getting at here. Regardless if you live in in Christian America or another country where they're persecuting Christians, it ought to be hard for you to assimilate into the culture. Because it's more nuanced. It's it's harder. There's tension. A life consistent with the gospel. If you actually are living a life consistent with the gospel, not with a certain American value or culture or church value or culture, but consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ as, as taught here in the scriptures, you will experience more tension than you ever wanted to. Your life is lived in this nuanced middle. So many things for the Christian fail to, to take this contrast of black and white and so many things in, in how we engage the public sphere and our faith. It takes this gray tension in the middle. And, and Paul here is warning the Christians of that. He's saying, let your life be, let your, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel and then verse 20, 29, he says, For them it has been granted, for, you, for, uh, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. So he's warning us there's the suffering. A big part of that suffering is battling with the tensions in our culture. A big part of that suffering is not being able to cozy up with the culture because of our faith. And then he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. And so what was that conflict? Again, Paul is in prison. Well, for, the, for Paul, the conflict is really learning to put his allegiance in Christ rather than Israel. Paul was this sold-out, zealous Jew, persecuting Christians. He was, he was a, a Pharisee. Now, we talk about Pharisees in the bad light because Jesus call, calls them out because they're putting their religious tradition above others and above the true biblical Christianity. But Paul was a Pharisee, and if you were a Jew in the first century, you would have wanted to be a Pharisee. It was this privileged status among Israel, and, and he was a person by the book. He was a zealous Jew until he met Jesus, and he had to shift his allegiance from his religion to his Savior. And so consider the conflict at hand for Paul. Paul had to learn how to put his allegiance in Jesus before his religious culture and upbringing and background. Maybe that's a conflict that some of you have dealt with. 
Maybe that's a conflict that you continually deal with. Like maybe you see the inconsistencies with some of the religious culture and maybe the American church or maybe you you grew up in a different country and even your church there, there were some inconsistencies between the culture of the church that you grew up in and what you read in the scriptures. I mean, it happens, right? There's so many people involved in creating churches that oftentimes our religious traditions and our church cultures actually conflict with the teachings of Jesus. The Apostle Paul experienced it. This is part of his conflict. He had to learn how to put his primary allegiance in Jesus, not his religious tradition. Another example from the church in Philippi is Lydia. Lydia was the the rich businesswoman, the seller of purple. Now, I would imagine if you are a business person or just somebody who has an extra amount of money, maybe part of the conflict that you've dealt with is how, how do you learn to trust Jesus and follow him rather than trusting your own wealth, your own savings, your own investments, your own ability to provide for your family or for the life that you want? I have to imagine this is some of what Lydia had to deal with. This rich businesswoman, likely with two houses, one in Philippi and one in Thyatira, her house was, was large enough that she used it as the, the church building for the core team of the church in Philippi. It was a house church, and she hosted the church, and she hosted Paul and Silas and let them stay there, and her entire family was baptized as they came to believe in Jesus. And, and I have to imagine that some of the conflict that she felt as she surrendered her life to Jesus was, what does it look like for me now to trust this Savior who, who I can't see, who I can't touch. I have his words. I have his community. But, but now I have to trust him, and he calls me to give it all up for the good of others. I have to imagine Lydia had to, had to learn how to trust Jesus rather than her own wealth. Maybe she had to change some of her business practices as a rich seller of purple, I don't, I don't know the business practice world of being a seller of purple in the first century from Thyatira and selling your purple goods in, in Philippi, but I would imagine just like today, there were plenty of shady business deals. There was a way to take advantage of people. There is a way to make more profit. I mean, you don't get into sales thinking, most people don't get into sales thinking, I want to make other people rich. Most people get into sales thinking, I want to get rich. And so what kind of conflict did Lydia experience as she placed her faith in Jesus? Probably learning to trust him rather than her wealth and her security and her safety. What about the slave girl? The demon-possessed, trafficked slave girl. If you know anything about abuse victims, people who have experienced a, a significant level of abuse, it's so hard for them to deeply trust anyone. Because everyone's broken their trust. Everyone has used them for their own profit, for their own gain, for their own agenda. And so the slave girl, as, as Paul and Silas pray for her and the demons are cast out of her and she's only been trafficked and used by people for money. People used her to predict the future and tell the future so that they could get a gain. She was a fortune teller. She was, she was, she was trafficked by these business owners who used her for their own profit and likely took advantage of her sexually and likely beat her. She was a commodity to them. She was a slave. She's set free by Jesus. Can you imagine the conflict? 
that, that she had in her own soul with trying to learn how to trust somebody. And then even just culturally, like the cultural background that she came from, she had to learn how to trust Jesus and how to commit to this other group of people and trust that they weren't going to use her. In fact, she had to join this community where, where they believed in prophecy. She was a demon-possessed prophet. So now she's in this church community who's talking about prophecy, and they're, they're talking about visions that God had, had given them and, and predicting things for the future and, and proclaiming things for the future, and, and she had to live amongst that and learn to trust them. Conflict, not just the average conflict that everyone in the world deals with, but this unique layer of conflict for the Christian. And then lastly, the Roman jailer. Remember, he was a military official employed by Rome, working for the Romans, who, who essentially ruled the world at this time. Military official, sold out to Rome, working for Rome, employed by Rome. And, and it wasn't much different than it is today when, when he, like, he was just, he was, he had given his life to serve the Roman Empire. And so he had an allegiance to Rome. And now coming to Jesus, he has to learn how to shift his allegiance from nation to Christ. He has to put Jesus before Rome. He, he has to understand what's in this book. And he, and he has to say, you know what? If, if, the, if the nation that I've served my entire life in the country that I've been employed to protect and to care for and to, to exert their laws, if it collides with this book, with these teachings, my allegiance is now to Jesus. It's, it's to what he says. It's to this constitution, not the Roman constitution. What type of conflict does that create for this Roman jailer? If you remember in Acts 16, he, he goes home and his entire family places their faith in Jesus and they're all baptized and they become followers of Jesus. And can you imagine this conflict now that they had to live in, in their cultural context? And it's not much different for us if we think about it, is it? As we consider how Paul had to shift his allegiance from his religious tradition to Jesus. We've experienced many of those same conflicts, haven't we? As we consider that Liv, Lydia had to shift her allegiance from wealth and the business practices that she knew and the cultural context in which she lived to Jesus and this new community who did things differently, upside down from the world, the type of conflict that that created in her. The slave girl who was abused and trafficked and now she had to commit to this community and learn how to live among them and trust other people and trust Jesus, this conflict that created and this Roman jailer who is employed by the Roman Empire. And, and he's a good soldier. That's why he was the prison guard. I mean, this guy had sold out his life to protecting his country. And now all of a sudden, he, he's having to shift his allegiance. And his entire family joined him in that. Not so different than it is for us. I would guess and I would imagine many of you have felt many of these same tensions. And so the last question here to ask is, what about you? Where's the cultural tension for you? What are you most defensive about or protective of? Learning your triggers, learning what you are defensive about or protective of will reveal your 
idols. And as a Christian, your idols must be laid down, repented of, and exchanged for God's grace in Christ. See, the reality is that it says, as Americans, and, and we have a group of people from our church who aren't from America, and so this isn't as true for you, but the majority of our church has grown up in America, and on our money it says, in God we trust. But none of us can deny that there's a lot of things in our culture and in the building of our country that are not biblical truths, that, that we're not as built on a Christ-like foundation as we like to think, right? And so we experience these tensions, Paul is saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Not worthy of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. Today, not worthy of the American dream. No, they're not equals. To Paul, he's not saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the, the Jewish tradition. No, to Jesus. Your manner of life doesn't need to be worthy of a denomination that you grew up in or a tradition that you grew up in in a certain way of doing it. No, it's to Jesus. Your, your manner of life isn't, I mean, we... We live in a country that tells us that we have rights, that we have freedom, and praise God that we have freedom and that we have rights. But what we're going to see as we go on in the book of Philippians is that Jesus calls us to use our gospel freedom to lay down our rights for the good of others. Not to fight for our rights, not to protect our rights for our comforts and to keep our idols. That's what Paul is getting at here, church family. He's saying that, all else can be thrown away except for Jesus. That's why in verse 21 he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm not going to die for the Roman Empire. I'm not going to die for the Israelite, the Jewish tradition. Lydia, don't die for your wealth. Don't live for your wealth. Don't let your wealth define you. Your culture, and even in the moment of tension and friction and, and all that's going on in our world right now, it's going to be polarizing because polarizing sells and polarizing gets attention. Man, are you for them or are you for them? Are you with them or are you with them? Which side are you on? And Christian, I think what the gospel is telling us is that it's going to be harder for us to pick sides. You're going to feel this tension, this conflict in the middle as you let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Not worthy of the American dream. Not worthy of your savings account. Not worthy of the Democrats or the Republicans. You are going to be uncomfortable. Your life is lived in tension. And Paul says, engaged in the same conflict. What is that conflict? Here's the conflict. Look at verse 30. Verse 29 and 30, as we close out. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe. So your faith has been granted to you. It's a gift from God to you. You believe in Jesus. This has been granted to you. And in this you will also suffer. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This conflict rages on. 
for the Christian, we have a hard time cozying up to the things of the world because we're cozied up to the culture of the book, to the person of Christ, to the culture of the kingdom of God, and this does not fit into the world. And so, Christian, just be aware. You're going to live your life in conflict. Embrace the tension. If you're not experiencing tension, you're probably too cozied up to your preferred cultural expression of life. There's no easy answer. And, and, and what I want you to know, church family, is that we as Christians, we ought to live in this tension, live in this middle, looking at things from every angle, from every side, and saying, what does it look like for me to live my life, as Paul tells me to in verse 27, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus? As he tells, in, tells us in verse 21, that my life is for Jesus And if my life ceases to exist, that's gain. And so, church family, I want to encourage you to embrace the conflict now, letting it be a reminder that you will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no conflict. Embrace the conflict between biblical Christianity, true Christianity, Christ-like living, and the world that you live in. There is no easy path forward for the Christian here and now in this life. So embrace that conflict, whatever that may be for you. If it's, do I underage drink at the party? Do I, do I sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend before we're married? Do, I, do we move in together? Do I, do I cheat on my taxes? Do I vote Republican, Democrat, third party? Not at all. There's no easy answer. Well, there's an easy answer to a couple of those examples the first couple ones. There's not an easy example to the political question. But our life is lived in this constant tension between what the world will tell us we should do and ought to do, how we respond, how we engage, and how Paul tells us to engage the same conflict. There's this tension, and so Christian, embrace the conflict. Don't live your life trying to solve the conflict. Embrace the conflict. Live in the tension letting it be a reminder that you will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. As we close down, flip over to Revelation chapter 21. And let's hear what God's word has to say about this day when there will be no more conflict. Revelation chapter 21. John had a vision and he recorded it, Revelation chapter 21. And if you have your communion elements, grab those now. We're going to take communion after I read this passage. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore 
for the former things have passed away. See, that's the life that we're headed to, Christian, a life without conflict, a life without tension, a life where there is no more tears or suffering or pain anymore. And so we can engage this conflict now. We ought to engage this conflict now. We ought to run into the cultures of the world with the values of Jesus and engage that conflict head on because we have this glorious future, this glorious day to look forward to when there is no more death or pain or suffering. And until we get there, we have this reminder from Jesus. If you have your communion elements, grab the bread. Jesus, Jesus told us, he said, Christian, beware. In this world, you experience trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And on the night before he was crucified, as he ate with his followers, as he was building this new community with this new, with this new value system with, that will run in conflict with the world, he took his, the bread and he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat, take this and remember me. And he passed it around to them and they, take, they took and they ate together. And so would you take and eat with me. And when they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the covenant of my blood shed for you, the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you drink this, remember me. Remember that your sins are forgiven. And so Christian, you engage the conflict as a forgiven person a sinner now made a saint by the blood of Jesus. And he says, take and drink and remember me. And so let's drink together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. That you engaged the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world to the point of death. We may experience some persecution, some being ostracized, we may experience the, the tension between trying to find where we fit in this life and, and some of these conflicts, but you experience the conflict to the point of death in our place, on our behalf. And so Jesus, we thank you for that. And I ask that you would empower us to engage this conflict with the reminder that there will come a day when we live our life conflict-free in your presence forevermore. Pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.